Okay, good morning. Today's daf is daf Kuflametes. Um Today's shir is Le'ilu Nishmas Nochum Ben Moshe. No. And we wish Mervin a long life. It's also Le'ilu Nishmas Ben Sion Ben Ze'ev Halevi. Ben Ze'ev Moshe. Uh, ben Ze'ev Avram Halevi. And Le'ilu Nishmas um, Arya Lei Ben Shmuel HaKohen. Um, yeah, we're on the second line of Kuf Lamates, 139. Tanya Rabbi Ben Ben says, If you see a generation which has many um, tzoros affected, say Yisrael, go and check out the Jewish judges. Shekol Puranios Shebola because all punishments, all calamities that come to the world, they only become because of the Jewish judges. Um, obviously, on the surface, this is specifically referring to judges. But remember, there are lots of times where our decisions, we act as judges. We interact with people based on our discussions with other people about them. We interact with people based on just how we judge them, which is, in a way, playing the role of a judge. So, again, I think it is specifically for judges, but obviously we have to take this, these, these principles to heart. Where do we see that the punishments, calamities, come as a result of judges? So it says, Shemunah Zois, Shemunah Zois, Roshay Beis, Yaakov, Kitsuna Beis, Israel, listen to this. The leaders of Yisrael, Hamis Avim Mishpat, who pervert, who are, make justice uh, toeva, an abomination. The Eskol Hayashore Yakshu, and they twist everything that is upright. They build Sion with blood, Yushalayim Ba'avlo, and Yushalayim in deceit. And now we're going to see three things that the leaders do wrong. Roshel Beshoichad Yishpoitu, the heads, the leaders judge with bribery. By corruption, the Kohanim bechim the mechir yoru, the Kohanim paskin based um, for a price, and the Neviyeho bekesef yik somu, and the prophets divine for money. The Alashem Yoshiyenu v'goymar, and they say, you know, what, we'll rely on Hashem. What is that? Just this last point to show him. Elo shetolu betchulam b'misha amav ha'yoylam. They're extremely wicked, and nevertheless, they trust in Hashem. What is obviously not from a good way. They say, Hashem would never harm us. And that's their trust in Hashem, which is obviously false if they, we can generally rely on Hashem's mercy, but not if we're perpetuating uh, injustices. Therefore, Hashem brings three punishments against the three Averas that they have. Shinemar, as the Apostle says, Lochem Biglalechem, because of you. First one, Sion Sode Techorosh. Zion, the base Amigdash, will be plowed over like a field. The Yerushalayim and Yerushalayim, Ientia, will be a pile of rubble. The Harabayis, Labamos, Yar, and Harabayis will be like a, the heights of, like the Bamos of a forest. So, the three Averas, again, remember the judges are the ones who judge Eretz Israel, and it's fitting for them to lose their, um, to cause destruction of Harabayas, because remember the, the Sanhedrin used to, their home, the seat of the Sanhedrin was on Harabayas. 
It's also the Kohanim, or we always know the Kohanim are referred to as the rabbis, and that's what here, the Yoru, they, they issue Psakim, but Mechir, it's all for a price. For the right price, you get the right answer. Um, and they pervert Torah and justice, and we know um, Udvar Hashem Yerushalayim, the words of Hashem come out of Yerushalayim, and therefore it's fitting in response to their perversion that Yerushalayim is destroyed. And regarding the Nevi'im, well, we always say that that's from um, the Nevi'im, their prophecy is from the Shekhinah resting on them, and the primary resting place of the Shekhinah is the Beis Hamikdash, Zion, and that's what... Uh, and therefore, in response to their crookedness, um, Zion will be destroyed, the base of will be destroyed. Then it carries on. Hashem will not rest his shrine on Israel until the bad judges and uh, policemen have left Israel. Shenemar, as the Possek said, I um, yeah, have, been, uh, have been finished. Shenemar, as the Possek says, by Shiva Yodai Alayich. I will place my hand on you, basically I will cleanse you, and then I will return your judges as they were before, and your advisors or counselors as they were before. So we will only get um, things, um, it will only, things will only be restored to normal when the corruption leaves the when it seems when corruption leaves the Jewish people. Omar Ula says, Ein Yerushalayim nifte ele b'tzedakah. Yerushalayim will be redeemed through tzedakah. Shenemar Zion b'mishpat tifte v'shovel b'tzedakah. Zion will be judged, will be redeemed through judgment, and its captives through tzedakah. Now actually, the way we read this Gemara, there's a big question, because we said, what did Ula say? Ula said, Yerushalayim will be redeemed through tzedakah. Hey, not so clear, is it through the Jews doing tzedakah or through Hashem's tzedakah, but it will be redeemed. But I think, I think in this context it's through Hashem's tzedakah. Hashem's uh, righteousness, Yerushalayim will be redeemed. So that's what, we, that's what Ula says, but if you look at it, no. Yerushalayim will be redeemed through Mishpat and it's and the captives, Yisrael be, will be restored. So some actually have the girsa that Yisrael will be restored or redeemed through tzedakah, but Yerushalayim b'mishpat. And very interestingly, you know, in benching, we say um, the end of the third bracha. We say, Bonei barachamov Yerushalayim omein. The one who builds Yerushalayim in mercy. Um, the Vilna God says you shouldn't say um, Bonei barachamov. It should just see Bona Yerushalayim. Because we see from this Pasuk, Zion b'mishpat tifte. Zion will be redeemed through Mishpat. And not through Rachamim, through Mishpat. So that's, a, that's an interesting discussion on this Pasuk and exactly what the Drosha means. But at least according to Ula, um, Yerushalayim will only be redeemed through Tzedakah. Omar Papa i botli yahira botli amagushi. If the arrogant ones get cancelled out, then the Amagushi will get cancelled out. The Amagushi are people who, I mean, we often translate it as magicians or sorcerers, but they, the ones who, they incite and drive B'nai Israel to serve Avodah Zorah. And e botli dayone, botli gezirftini. If the judges get um, finished, the corrupt judges we were discussing at the top of the page, when they finish, then 
Gizirfatni would be um, will also be cancelled. The what are Gizirfatni? So those are um, non-Jewish policemen and officers who persecute the the Jews. So you want uh, if if the Jews want police brutality to end against them, they must uh, worry about the the corrupt judges. Where do we see the pasuk that if the arrogant ones are bottled, the amagushi will be bottled? As it says, and the staff of the evil, shevet moishlim, and the the staff of the rulers. So he explains, shever Hashem mater Hashem will break the staff of the evil. Elu hatayonim shenasol makal lechaznehem. Those are the dayonim who become staffs to their assistants. Sometimes a court can reach a very terrible state. You have, the judge asks his assistant to go, the sheriff to go summon someone, and the sheriff says something along the lines of, I'll only do that if you raise my salary. And the judge is left powerless. So the judge empowers the sheriff, or whoever it is who has to, his assistant who has to carry out his, uh, his commands. And by empowering him, he causes a corruption of judgment. He's just enabling the the evil um, the evil assistants to have more power and the judges are left powerless the judge should uh, stand up for himself and then the shevet moishlim the stick of the rulers these are the in the family of the dayonim often um, often the family if you have a judge who's corrupt or not uh, wise enough the Tamidei Chachomim of his family will often come in to cover up for him. I'll give him good haskomas, good reference letters, um, explain away what he did, um, etc. So those Tamidei Chachomim who enable those judges are the... That's the Shevet Moishlim, the staff of the rulers that Hashem will break. Marzutra Omar Elu Tamidei Chachomim Shalamandim Hilchot Sibur Latayonei Bor. Mazutra says, no, it's the Tamidei Chachomim who teach the general laws to the ignorant judges. If you have a judge who's ignorant and he's taught a little bit, just enough to come across as wise, he's going to pervert many cases when he has to try again into the finicky details and the finer points. And that's uh, this Shevet Moshlim that Hashem will break. This is Omar Rabbi Lazar ben Milai. Rabbi Lazar ben Milai says, Mishum Reish Lokesh, in the name of Reish Lokesh. Mind you, see, what does the Pasuk mean when it says, Ki kapayim nigalu bedam. The hands are sullied with blood. Ve'etsposeihem ba'avon. And the fingers with sins. Sifsoseihem dibru sheker. Dibru sheker. Their lips speak falsehood. L'shoinchem avlo teger. And their... Tongues speak uh, perversions. So he explains, What does it mean their hands are sullied with blood? That's referring to these corrupt judges. Rashi explains, because when a, if a judge rules wrongly and he ends up taking money from one person and giving it to another, 
We've seen if you steal from someone that's like you, kill them. That was Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai in Masbi Baba Kama, I think, says if you steal from someone, it's as if you're killing them. So these judges, their hands are sullied with blood because they corrupt and they judge and they end up taking money from one person and giving it to another person and that shouldn't be. That's Boseyam Ba'avon. What does it mean? Their fingers would sin. Elu Sofriyatayonim. These are the the scribes of the judges are the ones who would have to write out the, the documents, the court orders, etc. Again, if they're corrupt, the documents are going to be flawed and messed up and it's going to end in a perversion in its own right. And so it's the same. What does it mean their lips speak falsehood? Those are generally translated as the lawyers. But basically, they're people who, yeah, along the lines, remember that a Jewish monetary court case is largely based on the initial claims of the litigant. So if the litigant says his claim in one way, as opposed to the way he would have said it naturally, it can really change the outcome of the judgment. And therefore lawyers, their role in a Jewish court would often be to try find the best claim, not necessarily the most honest, maybe even slightly off, but give the, give the litigant a better claim. But again, that can cause the perversion of uh, judge of judgment. And the showing them avla tege elu baledinim, and their tongues speak um, perversions. This is the litigants who follow the advice, who make slightly false claims. Again, you can say, "I know I'm true. I know what I'm saying is the truth, and I know, uh, and I just want to win the case, not because I'm." Uh, evil and trying to avoid it's just because I know I am so I'm going to say the best uh, the best possible defense for me and uh, or the best possible uh, claim and again but that is if that's not the absolute truth that's a perversion so all these and um, again we see the severity of uh, corruption in uh, injustice we find that uh, Hashem it seems it's one of those things that Hashem's I don't know if, if you can use the phrase takes to heart corruption in a in, in judgment because those are the people who um, the midas the mida of din and mishpat Hashem values greatly and it really it seems to from these gemorrahs it brings about a protection when you pervert that it costs lives it costs uh, parnosa which is in a way, many ways equivalent of costing lives and therefore. It's a very severe Avera. Rabbi Milai says in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Migdalah, it seems once we mention Rabbi Milai, we'll mention some other teachings of him, but I don't really see the connection besides for that it's the same uh, sage Rabbi Milai who said it. But he says, follows, Rabbi Milai said in the name of Rabbi Yitzchak Migdalai, from the day that Yosef separated from his brother, he never ever drank wine. Dilsiva is written, and the one who was a Nazir from amongst his brother. Generally, that Nazir is translated differently, but here, for the sake of the Troshes, he was a Nazir. From the day that Yosef separated from his brother, he acted as a Nazir. Where do we see. Um, 
says they also never ever the brothers also from the moment they sold Yosef or threw Yosef into the bar they also went into semi mourning and didn't drink any wine. You see, as it's written again, this is when the brothers were with Yosef. They drank and they got drunk with him. Michal da'ada in the law it implies that it was now that they drank and got drunk with him, but up until now they haven't. They hadn't been drinking for many, many years. Of Edich, how does the first Rabbi Yosi Bribrichanina, I'm sorry, not Rabbi Yosi, the first opinion explain this? Because they said, this, it says, no, Shikhrus Hutalo Have, Shtia Mia Have. No, the brothers never used to get drunk before now. This was the first time, I guess, they really celebrated. But up until now, they, they would at least still drink blood. Um, yeah. An interesting question on this is this Pasuk is said when the brothers first arrived at the palace, Yosef recognized them, but they did not recognize Yosef. So it's all very well for Yosef to drink wine for the first time in, sorry, I slipped my mind, how long was it? 24 years or something. But it's all very, but the brothers, they didn't recognize Yosef. We know how the whole story plays out that they um, went back and forth a few times before he revealed himself to them, but they didn't recognize Yosef. So what changed with them that they started to drink wine? And that's, uh, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure. Something I just thought of now. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what changed. Then he says, V'omar Rebbe Milai, another teaching from Rebbe Milai, V'schari ra'acha v'samach belibo, he will see you, and he was glad in his heart, Zoha l'choyshen mishpat alibo, Aaron merited to have the choyshen mishpat. Um, this was when Moshe was at the burning bush, he was quite concerned, and one of his reasons to try reject accepting the leadership from Hashem, was he says, what about my older brother Aaron? I can't take the title and of, of the leader of the Jewish people when I have my older brother Aaron. He should be it. And Hashem said, you don't have to worry. Aaron will greet you with gladness. And that's what the apostle brings. When Aaron came and he saw Moshe and he was aware of Moshe's um, appointment as leader of the Jewish people, he was sincerely happy. He was so much believable. He was happy all the way to his heart. It wasn't a superficial. He wasn't a little bit jealous of his younger brother or anything. He was completely happy for his brother's success. And because of that, he merited to that the Kohen God or that the Kohanim would come from him and he could wear the Choshen Mishpat. Okay, now we go back to our discussion before we got a little bit um, sidetracked with the Agadita. Remember, we were discussing an oil harai. An oil harai, a temporary tent. So, Sholchu lei b'nei baskar levi the b'nei baskar sent to levi kila mahu, they said, what's the halacha regarding setting up a canopy on Shabbos? What's the halacha regarding um, hops in a vineyard? I'll explain that shortly. And what's the halacha regarding burying the dead on Yom Tov? So, by the time the messenger they sent to ask Levi these questions, arrived, Levi had died. If you're feeling wise, send them the answers. So, Shalach Lehu, he sent as follows. Killer regarding the canopy. 
I've looked into all aspects of setting up a canopy and I find no heter. There's no, you are not allowed to set up a canopy on Shabbos. Remember we said the standard canopy is, you want to, you have like a frame with the poles kind of along the lines of a chuppah. Maybe it's over a bed, maybe it's outside to protect you from the sun and you want to spread a cloth over that. That's making oil all right and you're not allowed to do that on Shabbos. And he says, you're not allowed to. He says, Why didn't he give them the answer like Rami Bar Yecheskel? Remember we saw in yesterday's daft. No, there is a solution. If you have strings on this canopy that you can just pull it by the strings and it opens and pull it by the strings that it's closed. I, in my mind, almost like an awning. It's set up that it just opens and closes very easily. Then it's permitted. So why didn't he tell them, Oh, you want to set up a killer? This is what you can do. So this is Lefish, Aenon, B'nai Torah, because they are not B'nai Torah. They're not, tell me, they're not B'nai Torah. They won't understand a subtle distinction. And if I give them such a heter, they might extrapolate to other cases which are not okay. They'll learn, they'll learn incorrect halachas from it. So I can't tell them. I'll, I'll come back to this concept of the fish at the end of this piece. Kashusa Bakama, what about regarding hops in a vineyard? So we know that there's different types of kilaim. One of the kilaims is you're not allowed to plant vegetables in a vineyard. You are allowed to plant a tree. So they want to know, does this hops count as a vegetable or as a tree? Are you allowed to have it in a vineyard or not? So what do you say? Ivuvia, it is kilayim. Oh, but the Gemara says, But he should have told them the halach is like Rebbe Tarfon. Why? The Tanya we learned in a Braisa, Kishus regarding hops. Rebbe Tarfon, Oymer ein kilayim bekerem. Rebbe Tarfon says it does not count as kilayim of the vineyard. V'chachomim Oymer kilayim bekerem. The Chachomim said it does count as kilayim of the vineyard. The Kaimelon, and we, and we learn, Kola meikil be'eretz halacha kamoisa b'chutzlaretz. If you have a meikil opinion regarding halacha that's specific for Eretz Yisrael, the halacha is like him in chutzlaretz. I, generally, halacha is connected to the land, only apply in Eretz Yisrael. And, but sometimes, for whatever reason, the rabbis extended it to Chutzlaretz. But we have a, a principle that when there is a machloikes of how to apply it in Eretz Yisrael, we apply it according to the lenient opinion in Chutzlaretz. So here we know, granted it's a machloikas, Rebbe Tafel and the Chachamim, where the hops in a vineyard is kilayim. We should pass in regarding chutzlaaretz, regarding these people of Baskar, the halach is you should be able to go lenient and treat it as not kilayim. So he says, so he says no, Lefisha, Eno B'nai Torah. Again, it's because they're not, uh, they're not B'nai Torah, they will learn, they won't really understand the distinctions and, they, and it will cause trouble. Just regarding this halacha machriz, Rav Hai manda boy lemizra kashusa v'kamal izra. Rav Rav said, as a general principle, anyone who wants to, he said it publicly and out, and obviously anyone who wants to plant hops in a vineyard may. Uh, he wasn't concerned that people who were not in a Torah would get mixed up. Rav Amram Chasida mangiyaleya. Rav Amram Chasida would lash people who planted hops in a vineyard. I, the Dayonim were allowed to give lashes to enforce Isurei Jirabonim. But, and he would. He would. He held it with us. Rav, Rameshashia would give a pruta to a non-Jewish child to plant for him. I'm just going to analyze this last phrase. Why doesn't he give it to a Jewish child? He says, no, the non-Jewish child will make, the Jewish child will learn from there. He'll say, when I was young, Rav Meshashia 
let me plant hops in a vineyard, so I'm going to carry on planting hops in a vineyard. So that's the problem. Also, why not give it to a non-Jewish adult? Says, people might get confused and think he was a Jew and think that a Jew can plant. And Raji explains, so what does Rav Mesharsha hold? He says he would pay money to a non-Jewish child to plant the hops in the vineyard for him. What does he hold? So he says he holds its mutar. Because it's chutz and you can pass it like Rabbi Tarfun and say hops in a vineyard is not a, is not kilaim. However, where possible, do it with a with a shinui. Do it in a strange way so that people will not come to treat this halacha leniently. I guess if they see you planting hops in the vineyard, they might come along and extend that to uh, other vegetables or other substances and which would be a clear Isudor Abonim. And if then someone goes to Eretz Yisrael, it will be an Isudor So maybe that's what he was careful for. Then the next question was a mace. Can you bury, how do you, can you bury a corpse on Yom Tov? Now remember, um, it's a, to dig a grave at least would be an Isudor Let's assume that that's the concern here. Regarding a mace, you shouldn't busy get involved with it, neither Jews nor non-Jews. Neither on first day Yom Tov nor on second day Yom Tov. Is this true? Rabbi Yehuda Bar Shilas Omar Rabbi Asi. Rabbi Yehuda Bar Shilas said the name of Rabbi Asi. Uvda Havei beBeiknish to Demon beYom Tov Asamuch leShabbos. There was a case in the base Knesses, the the Shul of Maon. They had a deceased person. They had to uh, bury, and it was Yom Tov near Shabbos. V'Lo Yadani Imiv Lei Imil Achrel. Says I just don't remember whether it was Friday was Yom Tov and then Shabbos, or it was. Shabbos and Sunday was Yom Tov. But either way, this, it seems that they needed to bury this, this body, otherwise it would be left there for two days and it would start to decompose, which is a huge zilzal. It would start to smell bad, which is a huge zilzal, a huge disgrace to, uh, to the corpse. So he says, So Rabbi Yochanan said, Let the non-Jews bury it. Rabbi says, if this person, if, this, if there's a corpse on Yom Tov Rishon, let the non-Jews deal with it. And if it's on Yom Tov Shani, let even Jews can bury it. Again, because Yom Tov Shani is only Isudarabonin, and Kovod Habrios, or Kovod Hamais, human dignity, overrides the Isudar Abonin. So that's why even on Yom Tov Shani, even Jews can do it. And even on the second day, Rosh Hashanah. Now he says, what well, was Rosh Hashanah different? He says, which we don't say by an egg. So, um, because what, what this last, well, let's just finish the point. So, basically our question is, we see that you can, there are times, if it's Yom Tov Rishon, you can get a non-Jew to bury the mates. If it's Yom Tov Shady, even the Jews can bury it. Why did... Um, why did Rav Menashe tell the Bnei Baskar that they're not allowed to get involved with the corpse at all on Yom Tov? They have to wait till Motzei Yom Tov before they can bury it. So when says the fish ain't Bnei Torah because they are not Bnei Torah. So just on this last point, most Yom Tovs we view the first, it's a soft, we view it as a soft whether it's first day 
Israeli Yomtev or the second day Israeli Yomtev. So if you have an egg that was laid on the first day, then you can definitely have it on the second day of Yomtev. Mimanafshach, either way. If first day was Yomtev, well then second day is not really Yomtev, so you can have that egg. If, sec- if first day was not Yomtev and second day is Yomtev, well then the egg was laid when it's not Yom Tov. So Mimana Shach, you can have that egg on second day Yom Tov, except by Rosh Hashanah we go strict because Rosh Hashanah we treat those two days as one long day. We don't view it as two distinct days, it's one long day. It's a special, it's in its own category Rosh Hashanah. Okay, that's one. Just interesting, Ramosh has a chuba, so do we apply this nowadays? Do we bury corpses? Do we do uh, burials on Yom Tov nowadays? Yom Tov Shaini or even Yom Tov Rishon through non-Jews. So Rav Moshe, so, the, so interesting enough, there are Hasidim who do that. There are Jews who have the Minag that they bury on Yom Tov, either Yom Tov Rishon through non-Jews and Yom Tov Shaini through, um, even through Jews. But Rav Moshe has a tshuva where he writes, no, he says, the reason for this halach is Kavod Hamais, that it doesn't start to smell, which is a huge zilzal. But nowadays that we have, uh, I guess, uh, fridges and freezers, that doesn't apply anymore because you can freeze them. And you freeze the corpse and no, and it's not at all degrading to the corpse to leave it till Matzei Yom Tov. So he says this heter, Rav Moshe says this heter doesn't apply anymore. Um, interesting, I remember once my grandfather was speaking about it, he was discussing how long are you... Um, it, the, the discussion was to do with these principles of covered mace and burial, and should you bury it as soon as possible, or are you allowed to delay the burial for family to arrive from overseas, and those halachas. And uh, he, yeah, he basically said, now that there's this uh, uh, fridges and stuff, you can you can go more more lenient because it's not such a disgrace to uh, delay the burial, and obviously within reason, if it's for Kavod HaMais, that more family will get there. His children all live overseas and no one can get there. If you're going to bury them today, you have to wait till tomorrow or the following day. So it's the, the actual Kavod HaMais is to wait in that scenario, or could be. I'm just interesting, I remember, I don't know if any of you listened to Rav Klicksberg's thing last night, um, but, but um, he was discussing, he touched on a little bit, we sometimes find Kabbalah and Halacha seem to argue. And the one point, I remember my grand, one in that shir, one of the Bochrim asked my grandfather, but isn't there a concern of the neshama can't go up to Shomayim until the body's buried, so it's in a lot of tsar, and that's why you should bury it as soon as possible, even waiting for, uh, you shouldn't wait for, for more people to be able to come to the funeral by waiting the next day. And my grandfather said, it's not in, uh, not in Shas, Shulchan Aruch, or Rambam, so I don't think we have to worry about it. I, we follow the halachic principles that we have. We don't have to worry. I guess, but that's, I guess, the more Lithuanian approach as opposed to the more Hasidic approach. You don't worry about these Kabbalistic ideas of Shomah hovering and stuff. You do, the halachic principle is you got to act for Kovod HaMais. And then you have to calculate, is it Kovod HaMais to bury him now or not? Just regarding this La'ein Sha'enon B'nai Torah, I remember, I think it's, it might be the Shagas Aryeh, one of the commentaries I saw, he wants to give chizuk to his students. So he says, I want to tell you a whole lot of leniencies we find for Tamirei Chachomim. There's certain times, like we see here, like the Bnei Baskar, they were not, they were no, um, they were no Bnei Torah. They didn't live with, uh, with uh, the wisdom of Torah amongst them. So they had to go strict in many halachas. And even when the Rav was paskening for them. And this is also, I mean, a Rav in general has to be careful when he issues a psak. What are the extrapolations that uh, his congregation are going to learn from it? Are they going to learn 
and extend it incorrectly or is it a good psak? So even if it's true, it might be the wrong psak for that scenario because of how people will learn from it. Um, but for Tamidei Chachomim, then there's a leniency. So he, and he brought a whole list of halachas and teachings where to encourage his students that said uh, the advantages that Tamidei Chachomim have. For example, here, you would, a, Talmud, a Talmud Chachom would know how to bury a mason Yom Tov. A Talmud Chachom could plant hops in his vineyard, etc. Okay, carrying on. Omer Biyabin Bar Huna Omer Rav Chama Bar Guria Misateif Odom Bekila of a Kaskasel V'yoytzel Ushus HaRabim B'Shabbos she doesn't have to worry. A person can take this canopy which has its strings, remember the strings to open and close it, hanging on, and wrap himself in it and he doesn't have to worry. You might have thought that the string, the canopy granted he can wrap it around him because that's like his shirt. He can wear clothes. But the strings aren't part of the canopy, so they, they're not essential for his clothes. So isn't that... Uh, Is wouldn't it be also for him to go out with these strings hanging off the off the canopy on Shabbos? He says, Maishna, and then the Gemara and the Gemara asks, Maishna, Maid Rav Huna, Dom Rav Huna. What's the difference from what Rav Huna taught, Omar Rav, in the name of Rav? If someone walks out with his talus that doesn't have tzitzis strings on properly, he's chayav chatas. If you walk out, let's say just three of the corners of the garment have the strings on, and you walk out on Shabbos, you chayav chatas. Because you're carrying three strings. No, the tzitzis regarding Shabbos are significant and they, you, they're not bottle. But the strings on the canopy are insignificant and therefore they bottle. What does that mean? So firstly, if you're wearing a regular talus or tzitzis, you can walk out with that on Shabbos because the strings are part of the garment. You have to wear them and they're part of the garment, as, uh, as that's the mitzvah to tie them on. However, if the strings aren't kosher, let's say you only have on three corners and not the fourth corner, well then it's not part of the mitzvah, and they're not really part of the garment yet. They're not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to wear your talus like this. So they're separate. Rashi explains that since they have techeles, the blue wool, which I'm, um, yeah, you can't say that it's bottled to the garment. You can't say that it's just like the tassels on the corner or something like that because it has trailers. It's very significant. So therefore, you would not be allowed to wear it on Shabbos because you view the garment as one thing and the three corners of tzitzit strings as a separate item, its own independent chashivos, and therefore it would be carrying on Shabbos. Tosos say that's not the reason. Tosos say the reason is because you want those, the strings that are on the canopy, you don't really care about when you're wearing this canopy as a, as a robe, you don't really care about the strings. But the three corners that have tzitzis on, you do care about them because after Shabbos you're going to come and put on a fourth corner. So you want them there. So they are significant and that's why they are not bottled and you would not be allowed to go out with the talus that doesn't have strings on properly on Shabbos. Isn't your uh, mitzuyetes correctly? Um, it's a very hard line when you're looking at halacha. What part of your clothes would we say are considered essential and what part would not be, but is independent. Um, obviously, things that are like kind of sewn in for decoration, 
a badge, a pattern or whatever, that would generally be okay because it's, well, it's sewn on and it's part of the decoration. But what happens if it's uh, one of the, uh, a big question is, you know, like on shirts or suits, they have like sewn into the label a spare button. Is that something you're allowed to go into Rosh Hashanah on Shabbos with or not? Okay, those are interesting uh, discussions that come off the sugya. Okay, the Gemara is now going to go on to another very interesting, um, well, it's, it's related to the Mishnah, but an interesting concept called Haroma. Are you allowed to do something in, in a mutar way when ultimately you know the reason you're doing it would not be allowed? So, for example, we learned in our Mishnah, you're not allowed to set up a strainer on, on, on well, at least on Shabbos, according to the Chachomim on Yom Tov, uh, you're not allowed to set up a strainer. Remember we said it was Uvda Duchol, it's a practice connected to straining, which is also, so you're not allowed to set up the strainer. So, Omar, Rabbi Barav Huna, Ma'orim Odom, Alam Meshameres, Be'yom Tov, Litlos, Barimoinim. A person can do this trick and set up the Meshameres, the strainer, to hold pomegranates. The toilet Boshamorim, and then he can go along and strain wind through it. Again, he's not allowed to set up the strainer to strain wine. That's, as we said, uvdin dechol. But he's allowed to set up the strainer, put the poles and put this cloth on top to keep his pomegranates, and then say, you know what, actually, now that it's set up, I'm also going to use it to strain wine. He's allowed to do that. Omar Ravashi says, but he has to at least put rimoinim in it at first. So it's, it's at least is set up for pomegranates. He can't just set it up saying, I'm going to use it for pomegranates, and then just straight away switch. He has to put the pomegranates in. You're not you're allowed to brew beer on Cholamoid for that festival, but you're not allowed to brew beer on Cholamoid for after the festival. Now, whether you're speaking about uh, date beer or barley beer, but if you have old beer, you can do a trick and and uh, and and drink from the new one, from the new beer you bring. I, you want, you've got cholamoid. You want to make some beer, so that it seems so that you have some beer after Yom Tov. Now, if you have beer and you don't really need beer, you're not allowed to brew more beer on cholamoid. But what you can do is brew the beer that, brew new beer now for Yom Tov and leave the current stock that you have for after Yom Tov. But again, at the time you're brewing it, there's no indication that this new beer you're making is actually for Yom Tov. You have beer, you have enough beer already for Yom Tov. Um, so the Gemara says, There it's not so clear. But he, um, it's not apparent, but here it is apparent. I.e., it says, when you're making, pardon? When someone's making, yeah, let's, let's not go there, because here on Cholamoid, there's certain malachas that are forbidden, certain, um, the malachas on, on Cholamoid are its own uh, complicated um, halachas. So, so, so Rashi explains, because when someone sees you brewing beer on Yom Tov, on Cholamoid, 
not Yom Tov, Cholomoyed, they think that you need it for Yom Tov. There's no clear indication that you have stock of beer. But here, by the pomegranates, when you're setting up a strainer, strainers are hardly ever set up to store pomegranates. They mostly, so it looks like you're doing something wrong. So therefore, to carry through with your trick, you have to actually put pomegranates in it to make it clear. Um, interesting, I never realized how practical this would be, this halacha, but now I'm, very, I'm, I'm pretty sure people are going to start brewing their own, uh, their own uh, beer. And uh, we'll have to, uh, unless, uh, and uh, I mean, obviously not barley beer for Pesach, but the next Cholamoid is uh, a sukkah. Sukkah is not so far away, and people might want to brew their own beer on uh, sukkahs for Yom Tov. So they're going to have to, if the, if the, the alcohol ban continues. So we'll have to see uh, how this halacha plays out. Omri le Rabbonin Ravashi, Chazi Mar. Hi, Tsubarai Mabonan, Varavuna Bar Chion Shmei, Varomilor, Ravuna Bar Chilvin Shmei. They said to Ravashi, Have you seen this, the one uh, Yeshiva Bocha? says, The Shochel Barad the Tumul, Monach Babarza the Tana, Varomilatana Kamachamna. He takes a piece of garlic, a garlic clove, and he puts it in the hole in the barrel, and he says, My intent is just to store it there. Now, everyone knows the reason he's putting it in that hole in the barrel is really to stop the barrel leaking. But he told them and says, you know what, my intent, I don't, where, where am I going to put this clove of garlic? Let me keep it there. And that's what he does. says, And again, he, he needs to get to the other side of the river. So what does he do? He's not allowed to go on a ship on Shabbos or Yom Tov. But he's, he says, he's not allowed to set sail. But he says, I'm just going to sleep on it. And he falls asleep on it. And this boat, the ferry drive, the, the, the boat uh, uh, captain sails off to the other side of the river. And he ends up on the other side of the river. He's like, oh, wow, that worked out convenient. I can now check on my produce. I can now go on my produce. So again, he's using these tricks. He says, ah, oh, it's a haroma. It's a trick. You're right. You're not allowed to put garlic to, you're not allowed to put something to block up a barrel on Shabbos. It's similar to Matake Mone. And obviously, if you do it uh, properly, then it could be Makeba Patish. But it's Matake, it's a, it's looks, it's Isudrabon because it looks like you're fixing the barrel. But if your intent, if you say your intent is just to store the garlic, well, that's a trick and it's final. So, to, yeah, his intent is to get to the other side of the river. But he says his intent, he just wants to have a nap on this boat. And then it sails off onto that to the other side of the river. That's fine because a tzuvimirabon by a scholar, a talmud chacham, he's not going to come and do it lechatchila in the wrong way. Okay, so it sounds from here also to rely on these tricks. You also have to be a talmud chacham. It's a big discussion in the rosh. When are you allowed to do um, haroma? When are you allowed to do these tricks? When are you not allowed to do these tricks? Is it only with isurei derabonon? Um, etc. But we don't have time to go into it now. Let's start the next Mishnah. Um, this is continuing with the discussion of straining. Now in the previous Mishnah we said you're not allowed to strain wine. But that was because it was boiro. And they basically bring out that there are three levels of wine. There's the initial stage of wine where it's very murky, full of lots of dregs and uh, gunk and Probably even a few pebbles that got left in from the from the, when they were pressing it. Um, so that first training is what the previous Mishnah was speaking about, and that is definitely Boirah and Osir and Shabbos. Is the next step is where you got most of the stuff out, but there's like a little bit of sediment, dregs and stuff. So you could drink the wine, 
but it's nicer to drink it strained from that sediment. And then the third stage is basically just to get it, it's already basically clear, but just to get it a drop, it, it seems sometimes it would get like a, a something uh, like a, I don't know what you'd call it, a crust a thing would form over the top of the wine. So you strain it to get that out, but the wine's 100% drinkable, even if you don't strain it. So there are those three levels. Many learn that our mission is now speaking about the second level again. It's wine that's drinkable, but it's nicer if you can get out some of the dregs. So he says, Sorry, so that, we, we, I'm not there yet, but that's when we discuss straining in this Mishnah, that's the, that's the straining we're referring to. But the first point is, You're allowed to pour water over the dregs so that they become clear. Now, if you have dregs sitting in the strainer, you know there's a little bit of wine that's going to be collected amongst the dregs. So you're allowed to pour more water that will help the wine flow through from the dregs because that's not really and um, the water is going to go through anyway so it's not boirer sifting or sifting or selecting the water and the wine that gets stuck in the water that goes through happens automatically you're allowed to strain the wine with this cloth or with this reed basket Again, this is, as I mentioned, this is straining this little wine that's already drinkable. If the wine was undrinkable without the straining, like early stage wine, that would be problematic because it's boiler. You can put an egg on a strainer of mustard. What they used to do is they'd strain the mustard and then they would pour an egg over that would strain, just the yolk would strain through and it would give the mustard a beautiful color. So that's what you're allowed to do that on Shabbos. You can make this type of drink on Shabbos. Rabbi Yehuda says on Shabbos you're only allowed to make it by the cupful, but on Yom Tov you can make it by a large cupful. And on Cholamoid you can actually even make a barrel of this Anumilim. No, you can make as much, depending on how many visitors you have or expecting, that's how much of this anumilim you're allowed to make. Iri says you're allowed to put clear wine and water through a strainer on Shabbos. Again, there's just a little bit of this uh, layer of filth or, or dust on the top, so you want to pour it through a strainer. Since it's basically drinkable anyway, you're not doing anything significant and it's permitted. But if it's murky, you would not be allowed to do it. Maybe they challenge us. says you can take one and you can mix the one with the dregs and then pour it through a strainer in the barrel and then pour it through a strainer on Shabbos and you don't have to worry. What if it's the even murky one you're allowed to strain? So Gmaran says, no, Targum Ziri Bain Bain Agiso Shonu. Ziri explains that's where we're speaking about the wine amongst the barrels. People who are prepared to drink wine amongst the wine in the barrels, and if you're going to drink at the, when you're standing by the barrels, is always going to have a bit more dregs and murky in it. So therefore, if you're drinking there, you're prepared to drink this murky wine, and therefore you're not when you do strain it. You're not doing any signif- anything really significant because you would have drunk it anyway. There he says, You're allowed to strain wine on a cloth. As long as you don't let it make a guma. The best way to strain the wine is to make the cloth that you're straining it through go into a little 
a ditch in the middle so that the wine, as opposed to spreading out, just drips through that one place. And But you're not allowed to do that on Shabbos. Rashi explains, uh, Rashi says two reasons. So what were they? Oh, the one is uvda the chol. That's the real way that you would spread the, that's the ideal way to strain. So that's very clearly a, a way of straining and anything connected to straining would be uvda the chol. Um, another concern is that you might come to schitter, to squeeze out the wine. We know you're not allowed to squeeze liquids out of a cloth. So if you set it up in a way that it drips into the middle, there's going to be extra liquid stuck in the middle and you might squeeze it out. So that's the second uh, danger, Rashi says, you can use. Over kfifa miktris, we said you can strain wine through this kfifa, uh, this reed basket. It says, As long as it's not higher than the bottom of a kli, the tefach. You've got this big barrel that you're putting this basket over to strain through. The basket makes a ohel. And we have a halacha that anything a tefach above the ground could count as an ohel. So even if, if you're making a, I don't know, a hamster house, you've got hamsters and you want to make a cover for them, that could be as long, if it's a tefach above the ground, it would count as be making an ohel. So you've got to be careful when you're putting this kfifa mitris in this barrel to strain the wine, that you put it within a tefach of the bottom of the barrel. Um, and Omar of high, Omar, sorry, Omar Rav, Rav said, this cloth that you want to strain the wine through, you can put it over half the barrel, but not over the whole barrel. Now Rashi here says, yeah, the concern is strain is, is ohel. If, if you put it on the whole one, then it looks like you've made an ohel over this barrel and it's a problem. The difficulty with this is then, if you say that, how are you ever allowed to put a lid on a pot? Okay. If Rashi is saying you're not allowed to put this cloth over the barrel, again, you're putting it over not to strain, but as a lid because it's making an oil. How are you ever supposed to put in a lid? Put a lid on a pot. You're making an oil. Again, if it's a small pot and it would be within a tefach of the bottom of the pot or the, li- or the food that's in the, or the food or liquid that's in the pot, then it's not making an oil, it would be fine. But a regular pot lid, how can you put it on? So one of the answers given is that no, here it looks like straining. So it's so once it looks like straining, then we're going to be strict and say it's a problem because of oil. But when you put a lid on a pot, it looks very normal and it doesn't look like you're doing anything wrong and therefore we would allow it. Even though theoretically it does, it can theoretically fall into the category of an OLRI. Um, others learn a bit differently. Um, they say that, just trying to remember, they say that, slip my mind, what is that? Yeah. Rashi, so Rashi seems to tie it to Ohel. If I remember correctly, they tie it to that it looks like straining. And therefore, putting a lid on a pot doesn't look like any. It's very similar to how I answered the question. I guess I gave the answer to Rashi, how they would explain it. Um, but it slipped my mind. I'll be near to check it up again for tomorrow. Omar of Papa Loini Herak Inchi Tsinusa Papumia de Kuza de Chavisa Mishum de Mexi Kamashameres. Someone, sh- he says, you shouldn't set up wood chips in the poorer. Because it looks like you're making a strainer. They used to have a special, I don't know, jug that they would pour, get the wine from the barrel into the jug and then pour from that jug. So if you set up a whole, uh, like wood chips and straw by the opening of that pourer, 
then it looks like you're straining the wine. So when you take wine from the barrel and then pour it out through those wood chips and straw, it looks like straining, so you're not allowed to do that. Um, the household of Rapopo would pour beer from one kli to another kli. What about the droplets at the end? So he says, These droplets at the end, the household of Rapopo didn't care about them. The issue here is the beer gets a lot of sediment at the bottom, a lot of dregs and sediment. So you really want to strain the beer, but as we've seen, if you're not going to drink it, you can't strain it because it's boire or maracate. So what they used to do is they'd take the barrel of beer or the jug of beer and pour it slowly so that just the liquid comes out and the sediment that's, and the dregs that are sitting at the bottom stay at the bottom. Now the Gomorrah is concerned with that. Oh, wait. But when you get to the bottom and you and it's a proper mixture when you've got the last little bit of uh, beer and dregs at the bottom, that's a proper mixture. And even though you're pouring it out slowly, you are separating the liquid from the dregs. So the more answers, which Rashi says, Rav Popo was a beer merchant. So a little bit of beer left at the bottom of a barrel, he didn't care about. He had more than enough beer. So he would never... Um, pour it to that low down. Another example could be you want soup, but you, uh, this would be quite practical to us. You want soup, but you only want the liquid part of the soup. So what can you do? And th- I mean, this would have many ramifications on Shabbos, uh, uh, but again, soup or pouring out with a ladle, however you're doing it, but let's say you want just the liquid part of the soup and not the vegetables and the meat and the chicken that are in the soup. So obviously you can't strain it because that's boiler. So what do you do? You pour it slowly so that just the liquid runs out and that the vegetables and chicken and meat, etc. don't run out. The one thing you have to take into account and be careful about is, uh, is when you start to get that it's a proper mixture. This is all very good while there's a lot of liquid and it's more like you're just taking some liquid off the top. But when there's a proper mixture then it falls under Boirer anyway, and you would not be allowed to do it. Remember when we were learning, I don't know if we mentioned this when we were doing Boirer, but we did, we, um, one of the things is it has to be a mixture. If you have an apple and an orange in a bowl, or two apples and an orange in a bowl, that's not a mixture. There's nothing mixed up there. You just reach in and you take the one that you want. That's, you can probably even take the one, you can take the one you don't want, because it's not a mixture. And so too, if you have uh, one pickle floating around in a jar. Separating, taking the pickle or taking out the liquid, it's not really, a, it's not a mixture. And let's say you have, I mean, just the easy, so you have soup with a lot of vegetables in the bottom. Taking some of the liquid off the top, is, it's not yet a mixture. It's only when it gets to that last bit that the vegetables and the soup, or the, in our case, in the Gomorrah, the beer and the dregs, are properly mixed together that you can't really distinguish between them without being very careful of something, that's when it's boring. Okay, and we'll leave it there for today.